0: Well, to jump right in, there's a lot to say about a Reformed view of baptism. We often have more to say about the things that we struggle with as a culture, and one of the things we struggle with is understanding what Reformed people even mean when we talk about baptism. But to remember, before we just jump into kind of a broad look at baptism in the scriptures, we need to remember kind of the context, and we can talk about the context of Hebrews, where what we have is people looking to turn back to the old covenant. And what does the author say? He says, the new covenant is better. It's better in every way. And so when he gets to his point of application, he reminds us of the full assurance of the reality of Christ's priestly work, that he has sprinkled us clean. And not only this, but the context of the Reformation, the context of the Belgic Confession, we tend to think that maybe we're the first person, who first people who lived on the earth, but baptism was a, a point of contention, a focal point of the Reformation. You had Roman Catholic teaching of baptismal regeneration, of baptism for the remission of original sin, and the Anabaptists were coming along and teaching adult-only baptism for the first time, at least in a very long time, if not for the first time ever. And so we have these two camps that are literally warring. There are literal uh, fights, cities taken over by one or the other. And between them, we have our Reformed forefathers trying to remind everybody of the truth of Scripture, sometimes being lumped in with the Anabaptists, sometimes being lumped in with the Roman Catholics. Quickly, to give an overview, because I'm going to try to go as quickly as I can, we're going to talk about the significance, what bag- baptism signifies. We're gonna talk about the relationship of circumcision and baptism, and then we're gonna talk about how baptism assures us. So those will be our three points. As I've said before in our series through the Belgic Confession and at other times, we really uh, understand signs well as moderns. That's the part of the sacrament we usually get. We get it's a picture, and we understand that it signifies something. But one of the things I think we often fail to appreciate is how baptism gets described in more than one way. We tend to think baptism washed from sins, that's it. But there are more uh, descriptions that maybe don't fit just that simplistic view. We understand the cleansing aspect and that is there. That's absolutely there. We heard it in our Belgic Confession. That picture, right, is like a bath. Um, You can imagine giving a child a bath or an adult Showers, right? You're cleansing with water. We're mostly fine, we get that. But even the cleansing aspect gets described uh, in ways that we may not account for. Paul in Ephesians 5 will speak of Christ cleansing the church by water and the word. It's clearly a reference to baptism and talking about the reality of what Christ does. Paul, when writing to Titus, will talk about the washing of regeneration. We tend not to think about that. Regeneration is one of those big theological words. But if we talk about the washing of rebirth, the new birth, uh, as our evangelical friends will say, being born again, the washing of being born again, that is something a little more opaque. Maybe we don't quite understand what's happening there. Maybe there is a tie somewhere in here to regeneration We read, as we did in our epistle reading today, about being sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ. Where is this coming from? And this is one of the reasons we sang Psalm 51 today. I think it's a beautiful picture of some of the background to what Hebrews is talking about. The psalmist is asking to be washed clean, and he's using the sacrificial system as kind of his toolkit to talk about it. He's talking about being cleansed ritually. If you have a a Bible app on your phone, you can go and just search the word hyssop. It'll appear a few times in the Old Testament. And that was used to dip and sprinkle uh, for sacrifice rituals, for other things, for purification. It would cleanse the offerers. One of the places that this occurs is in the Passover. Being sprinkled with the blood is they dip the hyssop, they sprinkle the doorframe, they cover it. And so, this idea that Hebrews is pulling on, drawing from, is of this ritual purity based on the temple, based on being clean before God, sprinkled clean with blood. That's what the Belgic Confession was picking up on as well. And so, Hebrews draws out that before we enter the heavenly reality, the heavenly kingdom, and the author will go on to say, when we gather for worship, we're already doing that, We need to be sprinkled clean. David in this psalm also speaks of being wiped clean. It's not just washed with water, but the picture of wiping away something with a cloth. Baptism, when pictured as cleanliness, is also pictured as consecration. We'll come back to that in a moment. Paul elsewhere will link baptism to the Red Sea. Peter will link it to the flood. Jesus will link it to his experience on the the cross. And so, it's not just this cleansing aspect, but there's something about judgment and deliverance that's pictured in baptism. In the Red Sea, the Israelites, young and old, were sprinkled and baptized, and Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10, they were sprinkled and baptized into Moses, right? He was their covenant head, in a sense. They're sprinkled, and the immersion, the flood, comes upon the Egyptians. They're cursed, Same goes for the the flood of Noah. The water cleansed the world. There was a flood. It killed those who were wicked, but it delivered God's people through the ark. And in the same sense, Christ applies this to the flood of the cross, right? He experienced a flood there, and we are sprinkled clean by the blood of the cross in baptism consecrated, set aside. Paul will pick up on this, Hebrews picks up on this, but one of the things that are, that's drawn out of being consecrated is the priesthood of all believers. We're being anointed as prophet, priests, and kings bearing Christ's name. The Heidelberg Catechism draws on this when it asks, what does it mean that you're called Christian? This being sprinkled with blood, this being part of this covenant is becoming a part of the priesthood The priesthood of all believers, that is what Hebrews is really stressing, that we go right into the holy of holies like priests would, because we're sprinkled clean in our baptisms. Another picture we see, Paul makes use of this, is putting on the new man, casting off the old. He talks about this in Romans 6, right? Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, when we're baptized into the triune name, sprinkled, we are united to Christ in what He has done for us. We share in His baptism. Our sins experience that flood and we're delivered through Him as an ark. And so the biblical picture of baptism is a little more complex than we often give it credit for. We tend to think of it as only a bath. but There's consecration, there's judgment, There's flood imagery here. We're set aside for our service together as we come to worship, not as spectators, but as priests offering ourselves as living sacrifices. It signifies things like the flood of Noah, the judgment of the Red Sea, the cross, but it points us to the work of Christ. Before we move On from talking about what it signifies, we need to kind of talk about the sign and the things signified. We distinguish these things there's the reality and there's the picture of the reality. And so the Belgic Confession taught this very clearly. When I baptize with water, I'm just pouring water, I'm not pouring out the Spirit upon the baptized, adult or child. I apply the sign of water. But the Spirit applies the real thing, the reality. The Bible gives us indication that children, when being baptized, can have faith. We are supposed to have faith like little children. And so, it's not as though these children have to wait till they're 18 to be considered Christians or to have faith or to profess their faith. They may have a very basic faith at the time of their baptism. But when I baptize them, it's the sign, it's the water. And often when we read in the New Testament, this is the way baptism is talked about. It's talked about kind of as sign, thing signified. Both can be referred to. Sometimes if we think back to the Old Testament with circumcision, it'll be called the covenant. This is the covenant that I make with you, talking about the sign of circumcision to Abraham in Genesis 17. And so these signs and the reality and the covenant that they're a part of sometimes get talked about all at once, and we have to keep in mind these different ideas of the reality that's pictured, the sign that's administered, the covenant that it is a part of. Now, on the other hand, we're not the only view out there. Some, particularly our Baptist brothers and sisters, believe they can tell good enough when folks are saved. They base this on profession, and sometimes your profession isn't good enough. But they think that they can tell, you know, we baptize this person because we have a pretty good idea that they are elect. They're fairly certain. And I'm beginning to think that this may be the root of the idea of uh, the kind of once saved, always saved, you pray the prayer, you're saved, you're good, no matter what you do. If you're baptized because you're saved, And you can't lose your salvation, this makes some weird kind of sense, that if you pray this prayer, you're you're all good. But one of the things that this case mistakes is that we have that kind of knowledge, that we know who's elect and who's not elect. There's a more introspective type, I've already alluded to this, where your testimony has to be good enough. The Congregationalists did this par excellence in early America, where they had a narration of grace before you could be admitted uh, as a member and profess your faith and come to communion. You had to go up front and narrate how the Lord had delivered you. And it happened that sometimes the minister would go, that wasn't quite good enough. You're not quite there yet. You haven't dwelled on the law enough. You don't hate your sinfulness enough. We'll have to do this again. And this has certainly influenced our Baptist brothers and sisters who put a huge amount of pressure on testimonies. We need to have a a radical testimony. Do you remember the day that you were saved? Well, uh, I grew up Baptist, and I can tell you now that I don't recall a day that I didn't believe. There was certainly a time where I felt acute conviction of sin, but I always believed in the gospel even growing up in a context that was not particularly welcoming to that kind of view. So we have this view that, well, we need to be able to tell who's elect so that then we can baptize them. And we have people who play fast and loose with that. Well, they said they believe, therefore they believe. And then other people who say, well, we really need to drill down. We need to make sure that they've really, truly experienced experienced conviction of sin, of salvation. They need to be able to communicate it. On the other side, right, there's those who think that before we administer the sign, we need to know the reality is there. There are those who collapse the two. When I administer the sign, the reality is there. You think about Roman Catholics, but others as well. And so whenever the minister administers water, well, that person is being regenerated then and there. And so, these different views, including ours, come to a a passage like 1 Peter 3, where Peter will say, baptism now saves you, and they respond differently. Baptists are uncomfortable. They will turn to something like the ESV that talks about the appeal of a good conscience. Those who argue for baptismal regeneration kind of stop reading, baptism now saves you, see, But if we look closely, listen to uh, the passage. After they were disobedient long ago, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah as an ark was being constructed. In the ark, a few, that is eight souls, were delivered through water. And this prefigured was a type of baptism which now saves you. Not the washing of physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience to God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That comes from the net Bible. Um, More recently, there have been some discoveries and this term that has always been translated appeal is starting to be reconsidered. Going back to church fathers as well, they understand this as a pledge, as a covenant pledge. And so baptism is this covenant pledge. And though some would try to reverse the directionality and say, well, it's a pledge we're making to God, Reading him here, through the resurrection of Jesus, pledge of a good conscience, seems like something God has done for us. It's not the sign, it's the thing signified. That makes best sense out of what Peter is writing here. God has cleaned your conscience when you have faith in Christ, and you can stand before him, going back to Hebrews. You can enter to the Holy of Holies. It's the reality of baptism that saves, not the sign, right? So we distinguish these two things. What the text doesn't teach is that sign and the thing signified are collapsed, which is how a lot of people read it. The sign and the thing signified are exactly the same. No. And so baptism is this multifaceted, multifaceted picture that sometimes when we speak about it, we're talking about the reality of what it pictures. Sometimes we're talking about the sign that's administered. Sometimes we're even just talking about the covenant That it is in. Then we have baptism and circumcision, and we talked a bit about this last week, so I'll rapid fire. But I want to slow down here and make clear what we believe about this, because I don't think we actually disagree with Baptists. I think they are confused. So I want to slow down and make sure that we very clearly grasp this. Circumcision was a sign of entry into the Abrahamic covenant. Baptism is the sign of entry into the new covenant. When we talk about the replacement, that is what we mean. We may go further, farther about how we explain what those things do, but fundamentally we agree on that principle. In the Old Testament, you entered into God's people through this sign. In the New Testament, you enter in through this sign. They will emphasize discontinuity. We will emphasize continuity, but the basic premise and function we agree upon. And so when we speak, like the Belgic Confession does, of of God having abolished circumcision, which was done with blood and established in its place the sacrament of baptism, what we mean by that is what the following sentence says. By baptism, we are received into God's church and set apart from all other people and alien religions that we may be dedicated entirely to Him, bearing His mark and sign. Clear parallel here to circumcision. So, if the question is not, does circumcision replace baptism, then what is the question? If you enter this way, why do we disagree? Well, the the question, what Reformed people have been saying for a long time, is who is a part of the church? The question is actually who belongs in the church. And so, is the new covenant different from the Abrahamic covenant in this way? If Abraham, as an adult convert, received the sign as an adult and then applied it to his children, should we do the same or have terms changed? Should we think of our children as believers or unbelievers? And so the Baptist contention, and this is a bit of a provocative way to put it, is that when Peter preaches on Pentecost, that the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are near and all who are far off and then commands, repent and be baptized, the young children were excluded because they can't repent. And so at that moment, they're excluded from the covenant. You can't repent, you can't be a part of God's people. But women are being included. So there's this inclusiveness and exclusivity to the new covenant that's cutting both ways. Adult women can now receive the sign, which they couldn't before, but covenant children can no longer and hardline Baptists say, yes, that's what we're saying. Children are targets of evangelism. You don't pray with your children. You, you minister the law to them. You make them know they're sinful so that they will turn to Christ. They offer the law to convict sin. They don't think of their children as Christians. Now, most, I would say, Baptists don't think that way. What they do is they have a softer view, and so... They do things like baby dedications. They will discuss the age of accountability. They have these middle grounds. Yes, these these children are, are sufficiently Christian, or they're covered till they're this old. Some would say that's because they fundamentally agree with us. These children are Christian. These children are part of the church. And so our Belgic Confession, along with Scripture... Is full-throated in affirming that children are a part of the covenant community. Children are a part of the church. We believe that God did not remove His children in Acts 2. When Peter is preaching, it's not excommunication. We believe that this perspective has continuity between the old and new covenant in a way that is sensible. It makes sense of places like 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul calls the children of just A single believer, a child of a single believer is holy. What does he mean by that? Well, he means they're a part of the covenant community. When Paul talks about baptism with the Red Sea, who's present being baptized into Moses? Children. He doesn't say, well, the children don't count, or don't don't apply it this way. Peter's Pentecost sermon was being heard by children. Paul will address children to obey their parents in the Lord. So we confess that we believe our children ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant, as little children were circumcised in Israel on the basis of the same promises made to our children. What is that promise? I will be a God to you and to your children after you. That hasn't changed. Peter repeats it in the new covenant. And so we believe that our children belong here in church, that they are to be raised in the faith. Lastly, to move quickly, we have baptism and assurance. The promise of the gospel, one of the things that baptism really signifies for us, is that it's no longer bound. As I've already alluded to, it goes to men and women, adults and children, Jews and Gentiles. Something that was a stark dividing line has broken down. Paul will build on this theme of the wall coming down in Ephesians 4. The promise is that for those who believe in Christ and His work for them, they are His. They belong to Him. He is their eternal Father. He is their God. He is your God through Christ. You're no longer enemies, but His people. You're no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. And this washing with water is an inclusive sign. Jews and Gentiles can receive this sign. Men and women, young and old, it's easy everybody has taken a bath, I hope, in their lives. It's easy. And like Paul, we believe in one Lord, one faith, and one baptism that profits us our whole life through, right? Because when we break apart the sign and the thing signified, baptism becomes a reminder to us. We are baptized, right? Baptism, the reality, saves you through the covenant of grace, which we enter through Christ's work, what Peter was teaching in 1 Peter, but it's this sign for us that that is true, that we are marked as that. We belong to God's people. We belong to God. It doesn't matter when we receive it. That's what it's telling us again and again. To put it bluntly, if someone was to go through the process of readmission after discipline in a Baptist church, they'd probably be rebaptized. We would say, no, you belong to this church. You wandered away but you came back. We have a form for readmission that does not end in baptism. You were marked once, the sign is true if you repent and you believe. So, how does baptism profit you today? How do we remember this, that one baptism throughout our lives is to profit us again and again? Well, if your conscience troubles you, Remember your baptism. You have a conscience that is washed clean by the blood of Christ. That's what Peter's saying. You have the pledge of a good conscience. God has cleansed you. If you're struggling with sin and temptation, remember your baptism. Remember that you do not belong to yourself. You've been marked with his sign. You belong to him. That's where our Heidelberg Catechism starts. What is my only comfort? I'm not my own. If you want to serve God, if you feel like you're in a, a period where you're cut off from the church or from serving, remember that by baptism you were set apart and consecrated. You're not just washed clean of your sins, you're anointed with Christ to serve Him as a priest. This is why Paul in Romans 12 will say, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. He set you apart to serve in the church, to worship Him, to offer yourself daily to Him. You enter into the very holy place by gathering together and worshiping God and calling upon His name. And so, how can baptism profit you, even if it was when you were a baby? Well, remember it. Remember what it means. Remember what the sign says about who God is, who you are. If you'll join me in prayer. Almighty and most merciful God, may we rest in your promise, which is pictured to us in our baptism. This promise that we thank you for. Your promise that you have washed and sprinkled us clean, you have sprinkled our conscience clean, you have washed our souls by your blood, you have set us apart in service for you. So we ask throughout this week that you would help us remember our baptism in moments of difficulty, of temptation, in the face of our own sinfulness, in a moment when we don't know how to best serve you, that we would remember that our baptism marks us out as your people and your priests. We ask that as we go through this week, you would root the gospel that's pictured there in our hearts, that we would be grateful to you. And we ask this in the name of your Son and by his Spirit. Amen.